I need to begin with a warning. Today's topic will probably make all of us squirm, at least if we take it seriously, because it's about a dangerous risk and a potentially deadly outcome that too many of us approach without any deep sense of personal concern. Do I have your attention? Well, after writing about persevering through trial and practicing wise living, James turns to say something vitally important about temptation. The Irish playwright Oscar Wilde, known for his memorable one-liners, once penned this honest confession. I can resist anything except temptation. So how do you do with temptation? Listen to what James has to say in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. <laughs> That's a pleasant progression of thought, isn't it? James doesn't beat around the bush. These three short verses seem to be clearly stamped with warning, warning, warning. Well, let's parse out exactly what James seems to be saying by posing three organizing questions to help us understand the anatomy of temptation. The first of the questions when considering temptation asks, who's to blame? Now, be honest. Isn't about every one of us quick to place blame upon anyone but ourselves? It's, it's almost as if we're born with this built-in self-deflection mechanism that's always quick to say, it's not my fault. A while back, a conversation between a dad and his little daughter named Sophie lit up the internet. It even made the TV network news, and maybe you saw it too. It seems that young Sophie had painted her Barbie dolls, among other things, with nail polish. And her determined dad was trying, in an affectionate way, to get to the bottom of it all. Watch. Okay, so Sophie, you just painted your Barbie with nail polish, right? Yes, she told you. She told you to do it. So when Barbie was laying there, Barbie said, I'm going to go ahead and just lay here and you can play with me. And then all of a sudden, Barbie said, okay, can you paint me with nail polish? So you were saying, no, you shouldn't put nail polish on Barbie. And she kept saying over and over again, a hundred times, she kept saying, please paint me with nail polish. She said, dad, a hundred times. A hundred times. And then when she was uh, all painted blue, did you think that you should have stopped painting her with nail polish in your room on the carpet? I tried to get off, but it was thinking, ah, no, I couldn't get it off. So you tried to get it off, but you couldn't? Now, where are you allowed to use your nail polish? Outside. Outside. But when you painted inside, why did you do that? She told me to. She told you to? Yes. Okay, do you, does Barbie know that she could have ruined your carpet and your bed and all of your blankets? Yes, she told me to. I said it was horrible, but she didn't listen to me. So you told her it was a horrible idea? Oh. Well, all my boys say, be, keep saying that. All of them do. 
good. So who should get in trouble? Should Barbie get in trouble or should Sophia get in trouble for using the nail polish in the house? Oh, my dad said they want me to paint on the nails. Okay, but should you get in trouble or should your Barbies get in trouble? But it's not a good idea, is it? They tell me to. I understand, but next time they tell you to, are you going to let them, uh, are you going to listen to them? No, I'm going to say no, and they'll say yes a hundred times. Who's to blame? <laughs> Little Sophie says, me, but. Isn't there always a but conveniently woven into the heart of all our sad excuses for doing wrong things? Some kind of Barbie voice that always made us do it? The headline of a newspaper advice columnist once read, It's not your fault. A woman had written in to say that she tried every form of therapy she could find, but still couldn't break a self-destructive habit that had long persisted in her life. The first step you must take, the columnist replied, is to stop blaming yourself. Keeping guilt on yourself only adds to your stress, your low self-esteem, worry, depression, feelings of inadequacy, and dependence upon others. Let go of your guilt feelings. Now, I need to say that there are times when it's true that some things can be beyond our control. With good, perhaps even defensible reasons to lay some blame upon someone or something else, and for any of you that may find yourself in that kind of challenging circumstance, no, I'm not pressing you to conclude that nothing but you matters in how you live your life. But often, we do find it convenient to avoid any sense of personal responsibility. How you act is all about how you were parented or not, whether you were raised rich or poor or, or helplessly predisposed to this behavior or that. And the list just goes on and on. Charles Sykes, in a book titled A Nation of Victims, argues that our American culture has been overtaken by the irresistible search for someone or something to blame, colliding with our unwillingness to accept responsibility. It's not my fault, he says, has become the loudest and the most influential voice in America. An example of this premise is found on the back of the dust cover of his book. Fired for consistently showing up late for work, a former school district employee sued, claiming he was a victim of chronic lateness syndrome. <laughs> We've all cast blame on someone else for our failures, made the argument that we just couldn't help ourselves because of this or that person or circumstance. Back in 1979, a San Francisco district supervisor shot and killed the city's mayor and another fellow supervisor. Now, it was a complex case for a lot of reasons, but during the trial, defense attorneys of the accused man argued that his crime was mitigated by his, quote, diminished capacity to plan the charged action in some kind of premeditated way, that he was depressed. And though he'd been a fanatic fitness and health food advocate, he had taken to consuming sugar-laden soft drinks and, and junk food. Now, the lawyers did acknowledge that their client was guilty, but that the only issue was his degree of responsibility. They argued he was a good man with a fine background, but he had just been operating out of this diminished capacity. 
They didn't argue that this was because of all the junk food he was ingesting, but they did leave it for the jury to weigh whether this might have had some kind of connection to, or at least demonstrated some evidence of an altered personality. Well, in covering the trial, one reporter coined the term Twinkie defense, and other news outlets quickly picked up that description. Now, some say the whole concept was an overstatement or maybe even a misstatement, but the jury did end up convicting the accused man of manslaughter rather than premeditated murder. Well, you might also remember the story of a young Texas teen back in 2013. He was facing trial for driving under the influence and killing four pedestrians and injuring several others. Testimony from a psychologist suggested that the teen had a case of affluenza, which was used as a defense and that sparked this media frenzy over the term and the concept. Popularized by PBS documentary and a subsequent book, affluenza is defined as a painfully, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. And all this causes the person to be unable to understand the consequences of their actions because of financial privilege and obsession. Or to put it another way, good judgment was compromised by excessive wealth seeking. Well, the teen's lawyers paid for with some of that hard sought money successfully argued that their teen client needed rehabilitation and not prison. And despite the fact that he had been speeding had over three times the legal limit for alcohol in his system per Texas standards, plus the presence of Valium in his system. In the end, the state district judge sentenced him to 10 years of probation. A footnote, three years later, this older but wiser, not so wiser defendant ended up being sentenced to 720 days in jail for violating his probation, but there was probably some good reason for that too. It's always surely something or somebody else's fault. Now, you might think these more famous and distant from us cases leave us feeling safe, maybe even a little smug with the more obscure corners of the world in which we live. But be honest with me. When's the last time you refused to accept responsibility for something you did because you blamed your action on something or someone else beyond you? Actually, this pattern of excuse-making and assigning no blame is no modern phenomenon, though we've developed a lot more fancy ways of, of doing it or naming it now. Last week, I took us all back to Eden's Garden as we considered the fall of Adam and Eve and, and their eating from that one forbidden tree. I want to take you back there again. After Adam and Eve sinned, God came looking for them in the garden, but they had hidden from him. Where are you? God asked as if he didn't already know. And Adam answers that they were hiding because they were naked. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And this is where Adam says, yes, Lord, we have eaten and we are so sorry. Please, please, please forgive us. <laughs> well, you know, that's not how the story goes. Adam says, the woman, blame number one, that you, blame number two, put here with me, gave me some fruit from the tree to eat. I did eat, but here's that convenient deflecting word once again, 
It's a little more complicated, God, and actually it's not my fault. Now, I don't know if there was any more conversation before what we have recorded in the Genesis text continues, but I can imagine Adam saying something like, you know, Lord, I didn't ask for this wife. You do realize that she wasn't my idea. Oh, she's nice to look at and to be with, but she was actually your idea. We're going to come back to this blame number two element in a bit, but for the moment, we'll stay with blame number one on Eve. Adam might have said, if it had just been me and all the animals that you made for me, this whole tragic thing might never have happened. She ate the first bite, and then she gave the fruit to me. And you tell me what's a man supposed to do when his wife says, here, eat this. We could have been at odds for all of eternity. So, of course, I said, I did what I had to do. I, I said, sure, honey, and I ate what she offered me. You're surely not going to fault me just for being a good husband, are you? Well, then God turns to Eve and says, so what have you done? And without a moment's hesitation, Eve turns and says, well, the servant deceived me and I ate. Oh, I ate, but, and there's that same old guilt deflection word again. You see, I, I'm actually a victim too. If, if Adam's going to blame me, I blame Satan. With all due respect, Lord, the devil made me do it. Well, there's an original defense, if I ever heard one, and it surely became a very popular one for uh, eons that followed. Some of you will remember how popular that phrase became on the lips of a comedian, Flip Wilson. But he was certainly not the first one to coin the phrase. Eve says, I was just enjoying another perfect day in your perfect garden, Lord, when this slithering thing that I had never seen before came up to me and talked to me and tempted me. It doesn't say that she added anything more, but I wonder if she might also have said, and I certainly didn't make this snake, must have been you. Which leads me back now to consider blame number two that sin could or must somehow be God's fault. James, in his letter, seems to have anticipated that somebody might try to play this card in the blame game, too. Neither the Twinkie defense or the affluenza hold a stick against this idea that God is somehow responsible for all the mess that we're in. Don't you even think about going there, James says. Don't ever blame God, verse 13. God not only can't be tempted, but neither does he tempt anyone else. You're clearly going to have to look somewhere else to assign the blame. And it's equally interesting here that James does not even allow for the devil made me do that defense. Now, he'll, ha he'll have something to say about the devil later in this letter in chapter 4, verse 7. But right now, he wants to make sure the accusing finger gets pointed exactly where it should which reminds me of a theological truth we can draw from an old comic strip where a perceptive pogo says these words, we have met the enemy and he is us. Notice the clearly pointed words of verse 14. Each person is tempted by their own evil desire. The story is told of a man struggling on a diet who had to go downtown for a meeting and as he started out, he remembered that his route would take him by his favorite donut shop. And as he got closer, he thought that a cup of coffee would hit the spot. But he remembered his diet and all the donuts that would be there to tempt him to. So he prayed this prayer. Lord, if you want me to stop for a donut and coffee, 
let there be a parking place open right in front of the shop. And sure enough, he found a parking place right in front of the shop on his seventh time of circling the block. James says it's all about our own desire. God certainly isn't to blame and not even the devil is fully to blame because we are the ones who make the ultimate decision. The enemy is us. And until we come to that realization, we will dangerously be deflecting the willingness to accept our ultimate responsibility for all that we say and do. Only when we move beyond our yes, but will we ever be able to address our true problem. The Apostle Paul, in writing to young Timothy, offered this striking confession. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all, 1 Timothy 1.15. Or the message puts it this way, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, I'm proof, public sinner number one. The only way to find a way to toward hope is through each of us being honest about personal responsibility when it comes to our sin. I'm guilty. There's no if, ands, and especially no buts. I can't honestly blame anyone else or any other thing ultimately but me. Which leads me to the second of three questions that we need to consider. Who's to blame? But now we need to ask, who is it or why is it so dangerous? James uses some vivid images when he describes temptation, words from the hunting and fishing world, dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, or some others translate it, lured, trapped, or, or pulled away. The truth is, there is always a certain attractiveness to sin, an alluring, entice, enticing draw. I like the way William Barclay puts it in his commentary in this part of the text. He says, Sin would be helpless if there was nothing in man to which it could appeal. Who would ever sin if they didn't find some satisfaction in it? How do you catch a fish? Do you dangle something in the water around it that will not catch the fish's eye? No, you use sparkling spinners or wiggly worms or pulsing lures, all of which very carefully conceal the dangerous hooks that are hidden within or behind them. The hope is the fish sees something promising before it finds itself having swallowed something that suddenly jerks it into an altered reality. Temptation like fishing is all about the art of skillful deception. And if you allow yourself to be lured and enticed, you can most certainly suddenly find yourself hooked within its grasp. It was springtime when King David stayed behind around his palace while his soldiers were out making war. 2 Samuel 11 tells the story. It was perhaps a dangerous idle time for him. No grand plans to make, no cities to build, just time to let his mind and his heart and his eyes take in all that was around him. And one evening when he couldn't sleep, David rose from his bed to walk around on his terraced roof of his palace. And in that dim moonlight of the night, he looked over and saw a woman bathing upon another rooftop. And the story says the woman was very beautiful. Well, of course she is. It sends attractiveness that makes it enticing, right? Had she not been so alluring to his eyes, we might have never even heard this dark story. It wouldn't have happened. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with admiring beauty, though there is something quite dangerous about letting the seed of an idea be planted in your heart that drags you toward a very dangerous harvest. 
it says that David sent someone to find out who this bathing beauty was. But the man about to be sent said, I think I know who she is. Isn't that Bathsheba? And then he proceeded to name her father and then to add the name of her husband. The lure of temptation is openly exposed. Now, at this point, David had an option. He could stop or he could continue. He could, he could control his passion or he could give in to it. It wasn't as if he did not know what was right, but he decided to do what was pleasing. And the temptation began to look more and more attractive to him. The bait was there. The desire was strong. And David, even with the knowledge that Bathsheba belonged to someone else, moved himself a little further into risk. Notice the dangerous progression. He saw, he sent for her, she came, and then he slept with her. It was a very quick process from seeing to desiring to seeking to doing. And as a consequence of it all, a child was conceived and then a tragic plot began to unfold to try and undo the consequences of what that spring night on the roof time had, had brought about. Do you think David might have had some second thoughts to sending his man to bring Bathsheba to his palace if he'd fully known what consequences were ahead? Bathsheba's pregnancy, the eventual plotted murder of her soldier husband, the later death of the sinfully conceived child, sibling rivalry, incest, heartache, alienation, the list of fallout goes on and on, all because of one sleepless night, an idle stare, and a seized desire. Danger. Danger, danger. Emily Dickinson, in one of her poems, eloquently puts it this way. Crumbling is not an instance act. Tis first a cobweb on the soul, a cuticle of dust, an elemental rust. Ruin is formal devil's work, consecutive and slow. James says that temptation is like that, innocent at its start, but so dangerous as the pool begins. The bait gets swallowed and the certain consequences are realized. Temptation is so dangerous a thing. One last question to frame for this text. Who's to blame? Why is it so dangerous? And now, where will it all end? I mentioned last week that the wisdom literature of the Old Testament may have been some of the seabed for James's letter. And in the book of Proverbs, there is this tragic story told there about a man who put himself in the wrong place and found himself quickly in a very dangerous situation that had a very sad end. In chapter 7, a wise man offers this wise counsel through telling a story. The vantage point for the storyteller is from the window of his house looking out through the shutters, watching this mindless crowd strolling by below. When he says, I spotted a young man without any sense arriving at the corner where she lived, then turning up the path to her house. It was dusk, the evening coming on, the darkness thickening into night. Just then he says, a woman met him. She had been lying in wait for him, dressed to seduce him, brazen and brass she was, restless and roaming, Never at home, walking the streets, hanging out at every corner in town, she threw her arms around him and kissed him, boldly took his arm and said, I've got all the makings for a feast. Now I've come to find you, hoping to catch sight of your face, and here you are. I've spread out fresh, clean sheets on my bed, colorful imported linens. My head is aromatic. 
Come, let's make love all night. My husband's not home. He's away on business, and he won't be back for a month. Soon, the storyteller said, she has him eating out of her hand, bewitched by her honeyed speech. Before you know it, he's trotting behind her like a calf led to the butcher shop, like a stag lured into an ambush and then shot with an arrow, like a bird flying into a net, not knowing that its flying life is over. So, friends, listen to me, he says. Take these words of mine seriously. Don't fool around with a woman like that. Don't even stroll through her neighborhood. Countless victims come under her spell. She is the death of many a poor man. She runs a halfway house to hell, fits you out with a shroud and a coffin. Wisdom says, if you don't want to end up in her bed, don't walk down her street. It almost seems like this young man is not so much surprised as he is looking for trouble. As luck would have it, he would find her. As luck would have it, her husband was out of the house and away on a long business trip. As luck would have it, there are fresh new sheets on her bed and spices in her long hair. As luck, or better we might say, as the lure might have it, this young man is set to be seized, and like a foolish fish, assuming that a lure is something good to eat, he will be startled to find that it is actually something both very painful and ultimately very deadly. Someone said that sin is never stationary. The bait does not lie silent in the water, but it bobs and floats and glitters and entices until the hook is finally set. So if you want to avoid the hook, don't swim in the water. Don't walk down the street. Or like King David, don't look at the undressed woman of a, uh, undressed body of a woman bathing nearby. As our text now closes, James switches this metaphor from an enticing sports-like metaphor to the image of, of a bedroom and a delivery room. Then, after desire has conceived, James says, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Sin almost always grows. One thing leads to another, to another, and still another. Someone's wisely said, watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. It's a scary anatomy of sin that James describes for us. A glance toward a nearby rooftop, a walk into a questionable neighborhood, a desire that conceives an action, and an action that when, in James's words, is full-grown, gives birth to death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a book called Temptation, describes how this progression works. He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes over the flesh. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here feel, fill us with a hatred of God, but a forgetfulness of God. The risk of temptation is that it puts us at a greater and greater distance, between us and God until he's he's gone from us, forgotten to us, and sin has its way. I think that's why Jesus was so interested in our thought lives, because there in the heart, later actions of our lives get conceived. People typically think about sins before they commit them. The fertile incubator for either good or evil is the heart. Proverbs 4.23 holds this wise counsel. Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Or Jesus, on more than one occasion, said something like, and I'll paraphrase, 
You've heard it said not to commit this sin or that, but I tell you, don't even entertain the thought of the sin because that's the risky, dangerous starting point for every misstep that will quite often follow. Or in another place, he said, what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. Well, frankly, this is all pretty depressing, a depressing place, and who wants to stop there? So I won't. It's, it's a scary picture that James paints for us, this anatomy of, of temptation, and it's a seemingly certain plummet into death and destruction, but there's hope. Well, let me leave you with at least a couple words of advice and encouragement. As sure as bad seed conceives to give birth to sin and death, good seed can conceive life. Writing to the church at Philippi, Paul wrote these words. They're freshly translated this way. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you've learned from me. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Fill your mind with those things that are good, and your life will yield that goodness too. But you might find yourself still, still saying, it's just so hard. It's sometimes almost impossible to do what I should and not what I should not do. Temptation seems to be stronger than my ability to resist. You know that alley is the wrong place for you to walk, but you still keep going there. So what hope is there for you? Well, two last helpful selections from Paul's writings are helpful here. One short, the other a little longer, but both focus on the tough wrestling that temptation can bring. To the church at Corinth, Paul reassuringly wrote these words. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then finally, this more struggling confession by Paul, that no matter how hard it can be, we can still cling to God's promise of help. Writing to the church in Rome, Paul confessed that even he, who some must surely assume never struggled in any strong way with temptation, actually did so very much in his life. And here's how he honestly expresses this frustration and tension as well as a strong sense of hope. If the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, he says, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the dead end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question, he says? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right 
in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Or the New International Translation puts it this way, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Temptation, who's to blame? Well, if I'm honest, it's me. What makes it so dangerous? Because temptation can so easily deceive us, and when it gains its place, our hearts quickly grows. How does it all end up? Well, that depends. For some, it will lead to death. For those who, through the strength of God, choose to find another way, there can be life. So don't take these words from James lightly. They are meant for us quite literally as a warning, a warning, warning. Never underestimate the deadly power of temptation.